0: Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into Scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big-girl pants, because here we go. All right, so last time we were together, we discussed, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing." So we talked about that, and with the idea of abiding in in the, uh, the vine, there is life. Abiding is life. And we talked about the fact that part of that, well, the basis of that is belief. When we believe, there is life. We are born from above. We are born in the Spirit, and there is life. And what does that life produce? fruit. And I think the simplistic view of this analogy is there's no other option. Do you understand that? There is either life or there's not life. There's death. And the only way that there will be life is for you to be abiding in the true vine, which is not Israel. It is who? It is Jesus. And when we abide in him, we are born again. We have life. And that life, I mean, just think about vegetation, that life will produce fruit. It will produce the fruit that comes from the vine, right? So what fruit comes from the vine Jesus? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, right? We talked all about the issues of we're not fruit inspectors, right? That's all his job. But it's not about behaviors necessarily. It is about the nature that comes out of us. We bear his nature. We bear his fruit and we will bear fruit. And the fruit will be evidence that we abide in the vine. And there's also an element as the other evidence will be what? Endurance. So these these elements of abiding, it begins with belief Without belief, right? If my word does not abide in me, you have no life. Does not abide in you, you have no life. And so it is belief that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing that, you may have life. Where there is life, there will be fruit from the vine. And matter of fact, he's gonna make sure of it. He's gonna prune and he's gonna keep you healthy. He's gonna keep that sap flowing so that you produce the fruit of the vine, and the evidence will be not only the fruit, but the endurance when it is tested. And I've talked about that in my own testimony. When all you want to do is walk away, when all you want to do, because you are are so broken and sorrowful and you don't understand, and all you want to say is, see you later, and you go to turn away and you think, where am I going? What is the alternative? I used to say that to my kids all the time when they'd get mad at God or something would go, "Well, I, don't, I don't know. I, 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 that's it. I'm, I'm done with it. I don't believe anymore. I, I don't know. I just think maybe." And then Zach would start spinning all this um, liberal verbiage of, you know, truth, and we would get in these big debates. You didn't even want to be there, but and I would say, "Okay, Zach. All right. Then where are you going?" If you're walking away from this, that's your prerogative. Go on with yourself. But tell me, where are you walking to? And he would turn back around to me. and if we, I said, you know, to me, it seems like you're really angry. It's hard to be angry at something that doesn't exist. So where, where are you going? So no matter how we're tested, at the end of the day, when it was, in te- when it was tested, even when you question, even when you wrestle with it, at the end of the day, where there is true abiding, I believe there will be endurance. Because at the end of the day, like me, you can say, and there I was in an agony I could not escape, but with a faith, I couldn't deny. And so I just sat in it because I believed what I believed. There had been new life, and even in sorrow and pruning and brokenness, there will be... Pr- Fruit will be produced, even in brokenness, especially through brokenness, and the evidence of it at the end of all days is endurance that I endured, and sometimes that freaks me out, like it's up to me to hold on, and my grip's not too good sometimes, but remember what we learned in the past, it's not just about my grip, I am in Jesus And I'm in the palm, the the father's hand. It's just not my grip. He is holding on. He who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. All right. So in that section, abiding had to do with belief and production of fruit and endurance. But in this next section, we're going to look, it's it's a little bit different. Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 9. It says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Okay, now we're not, we're not, the analogy, we're not abiding in a vine, we're abiding in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This is my commandment. Remember when he talks about obeying his commandments? Two, what are they? Believe in Jesus, right? Love God. Believe in Jesus that he is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing, you will have life. And if you do that, you will bear my fruit. And we're about to see what that is, right? Love others. So he he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I love the fact that this section starting in 12 to the end is bookended by love, okay? Both of those, love, love, love. So now he is saying that we are to abide in his love. So it's not about necessarily stressing belief or production or endurance, now the stress is obedience. He's saying, this is how I abide in Christ's love. How do I abide in the love of Christ? I do it by obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his. Listen to John 8, 28 through 29. It says, then Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak just what the Father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do those things that please Him. So He is saying to abide in love, there's some kind of beauty the way we display love is through obedience. The way we experience the depth of God's love is through obedience. And when we do that, we will share in his joy. Now, I wanna make one thing clear. When he says, He, I have loved you, that is in the aorist tense. You're like, who cares? I'm not a grammar major. It looks at an event as a single whole. It expresses the completeness of God's love for the Son and the Son's love for us. It is perfect and all-embracing. So I do not want you to think that because of our obedience, we get, like it's transactional, that we have to obey to receive God's love. No, we have God's love. We have it. Matter of fact, Romans 8, 28, I mean Romans 8, 8, 5, 8 says, but God showed his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love what Brennan Manning says when he says that God loves you as you are, not as you should be. Let that sink in. He just thinking loves you as you are, complete, whole, not as you should be. But how do we experience the true love of God? We experience it by remaining in it. And how do we remain in the unity and relationship of the Godhead? Through obedience. That's how we experience it. No separation and abiding in Christ by obeying his commands changes our relationship. Did you see that? He says, if you do this, because all along he's been saying, I'm in my father, you are in me. He has invited us into a relationship with the triune God. How do we experience the fullness of that relationship? Through obedience. We remain in united in their character, in their purpose, and what they set out to do. And he is saying that when we do that, our entire relationship changes. We are no longer considered a servant. We're considered his friend. What is a friend? A friend is someone who knows you, knows what you're going through, knows what's happened, knows where you're headed, all of that. Remember the fact that, you remember Abraham was called the friend of God? Why do you think Abraham was called the friend of God? Who better understood what God was gonna do? Abraham, take your son, your only son, to a region of Moriah, to a mountain I will show you and offer him there as a sacrifice. Abraham, you wanna be my friend? Okay, you wanna know what I'm gonna go through? Take your son, your only son. He's saying, I'm inviting you in, not just to obey me because I said so, but no, to be a part of this relationship, to understand who I am and what I've done and where we're going and what our purpose. We are invited into a relationship with the triune God as a friend. That's why. And he says, but just so you know, As my friend, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And so he's like, you wanna know what our friendship cost me? My life. I laid it down on your behalf so that we could have a relationship and we could have a friendship. And I'm gonna tell you, if you're my friend, you will produce the fruit I produce. If you are my friend, what am I going to ask of you? The same. I'm going to ask you to lay down your life for others. Love others as I have loved you. And that is what he is saying. If you're my friends, the fruit you will produce will be to lay down your life. It was displayed, right? It was the father's love to the son, the son's love to Who? Us. Y'all can talk to me. You sleep. The son's love to us, and then our love, what? To each other. This is the great multiplication that is about to happen, and he gives us examples of this all through scripture, and I'm not going to take the time because Lord knows I want to get through this discourse, all right? (laughs) I'm not going to take the time to really go into it, but let me give you some highlights, all right? He says it in regards to husbands and wives in this culture. He's like, Listen, husbands, you need to be gentle. He says they are the weaker sex. I'm not going to go into all that. But he says you need to be gentle. You need to be loving. You need to love them. He says it of fathers to sons. When he talks about sons being obedient to their fathers, and then he says to the fathers, and don't exasperate your sons. Lead in gentleness and kindness, right? He says it to masters, to slaves. He's not debating on whether there should be slavery. That's not the point. It's not the point here. Matter of fact, he was the most liberating force in this culture you have ever seen as far as slavery and women, etc. But he is speaking to the culture, okay? And he's saying in this culture, slaves, obey your masters, like be obedient as unto the Lord. But he also says, but you masters with slaves, You treat them fairly with gentleness and kindness. And he gives instruction. And then he also says it to Christians in government, right? And so he is saying, listen, the way to abide in my love, to stay, to experience this loving relationship is through obedience. I have made you my friend. I don't just tell you what to do without giving you any background because I'm your master and you are my slave. I have come into relationship with you as a friend. What did it take for me? I laid down my life for this friendship. And because of that, if you've experienced that, you will in turn lay down your life for others. Remember, this kingdom of heaven is completely counterculture upside down. It is gonna be won by laying down your life. And he says, you will be my friend, you lay down your life, and you love others like I have loved you. You are my friend's no longer servant. So then he goes to say, and by the way, if you're my friend, it ain't going to be good in this world. If the world hates you, no, it has hated me before it hated you. So he's like, the world is no friend of mine. And if you are my friend, it's not going to be your friend either. That's the basis. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is telling us that this new kingdom, this citizenship we have, this relationship with God is going to literally be counterculture to this world. Remember when we ta- I talked before and I said I should write in a journal everything I naturally want to do, and then do what? The opposite. Because it seems like everything we've been trained to do or everything we want to do in the flesh or everything we do in this worldly system, it seems like he turned all of that upside down on its head. And so he is saying, listen, you're no longer a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of mine. And mine is counterculture to this. And so they're not, it's not going to be, it's not your home. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He's not now making us a servant again. This is a new, uh, he's, he's going back to an old analogy. He's like, you're not greater than me. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, that's important. Okay, I'm going to get back to that. They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. That's from Psalm. That is when David is speaking this long psalm about Lord bring justice because they have hated me without cause. The interesting part of that, if you go back to that psalm, I think it's 39, but I'll have to go double check. You will see what the emotion is behind that statement. But what I want you to see is, do you remember he said, they wouldn't be guilty if, they, if I hadn't come and spoken the words or done the works. And do you remember when we were back earlier in the chapter, when they were talking? he was talking about They said, ah, you're testifying on your own behalf. That's invalid in our culture. And he says, no, my testimony is true. But if you don't believe the words, at least believe what? The works. Because he says, the Father testifies about me through the works. Because The bottom line is nobody could do what Jesus did. No human being could do the works that Jesus did. So he's saying, if you don't believe the words coming out of my mouth, open your eyes and see what I'm doing. Dispute that. You can't, right? Um, And so he is saying, if I had not come, I made it clear I spelled it out with all the words that come from the Father, and I backed up the words by all the works that I brought. And because of that, if they do not believe, they will be guilty. And he he is saying, this is why. Um, If you're my friend, the world is going to treat you exactly how they treated me. If they believed my words, they'll believe your words. And if they believe my works, the same, but vice versa. Remember, they are going to be a duplication and multiplication of Jesus. So if they're Jesus's friend, the world will not be theirs. You got it? He's telling them all this in advance. And remember, these three weeks we've been together, this is all in one discourse with the disciples. So no wonder he finally gets to a place where y'all can't handle anymore. I gotta stop right here. All right, then he goes on. And he says, verse 26, But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And remember, and we're going to get back to this in a second, remember the helper is coming. And I'm going to remind you of all that's been said about him, but right here, we've almost been talking about a court, right? Right? his defense of his words and his works, and they will deny. And he's saying, but don't worry. The helper is going to come to you, and he is going to continue to testify, right, in relationship with you. You're not passive. You are active. But there will constantly and continually be a testimony, right, witnesses, almost like a witness for the defense character witnesses it will continue and then he goes into chapter 16 he said i have said all these things that you will to you to keep you from falling away they will put you out of the synagogues indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to god These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. That word stumble right there or let's see, what does it say in mine? Falling away. Do any any of you have stumble so that you will not stumble, okay, or the falling away? That word stumble is from the Greek word that we actually get the word scandalize. Scandalize. So he says, basically, it means to offend, to cause to stumble, or to cause someone to lose faith or trust. He says, I'm telling you this in advance, right, so that you won't be offended or you won't stumble or you don't or you won't lose trust or faith. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to tell you in advance, right? Or so you will not be shocked by this. So that you will not be shocked and fall away. I am telling you they are going to put you out of the synagogues. Now It's gonna be interesting because I'm not sure the disciples would have ever left the synagogue on their own. They would have continued their work by going into the synagogues and teaching and preaching. I'm not sure, but he is warning them and he is saying, just so you know, you will be kicked out of the synagogue. And do you know how bad that was? Do you remember the healing of the blind man? Do you remember what they ended up doing to him because he would not change his testimony? And do you remember why his parents would go, I don't know, ask him, we weren't there, because they didn't wanna be kicked out of the synagogue because to them, that was the centrality of life, that was life to them. And, and so he's saying, I'm telling you in advance, you're gonna be kicked out of the synagogue, and then it gets worse. He says, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. Well, that's not good news. going will be kicked out of the synagogue, and whoever kills you, that's assuming what? I'm going to be killed. And not only am I going to be killed, I'm going to be killed in the name of who? Of God. I'm going to tell you what, some of the most vicious acts and some of the most vicious people are in the name of God. And the first person you think of when you read this is who? That they will be killed in the name of God. Saul, right? If you go to Acts... Chapter 8, 1 through 3. Well, let me just read you some. It's talking about the execution of Stephen right before. It says, And Saul approved his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Do you understand who he is? Do you understand how barbaric this world uh, that we're talking about, this culture was? He was literally on the offensive after the people of the way. Listen to chapter 9 even says, uh, the beginning of nine, but, st- but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I mean, Saul, and you remember what happened to him? Mm-hmm. On the way, he met Jesus. And things changed. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, right? And from that moment on, he became one of the greatest apostles who ever lived. And yet, at the end of the day, he realized who he was. I am the worst of sinners. And so, but he's telling them in advance, um, and he says, so when this happens, I want you to remember that I have told you. Now, he says, I didn't tell you all this in the beginning. Well, of course not, right? He didn't tell, you're just getting started. He didn't tell them all this in the beginning. Not only that, did they even need to know this in the beginning? No, why not? He was with them. Right? The whole point of telling them this now is that he is no longer going to be with them. When he was with them, they didn't need to know it. Why? Because he was their teacher, he was their provider, he was their protector, but now he's going to be gone. And they are now going to feel that the world is their enemy. Things are happening and he wants them to know in advance so that they will not be shocked and fall away, to stumble, to stumble. Okay, and so he says, I didn't tell you in the beginning, but I certainly told you now. He goes on in verse five, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is, your, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, does anything make you go, hmm, in that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because, you know, when, when he says, um, and none of you have asked me, where are you going? See, here's what most people do. You read through that, you go, that's weird, and then you keep reading. And you never address, you don't stop and sit in it. You're like, that is not true. They did ask, right? So why would you say that? Well, let's figure it out. It says, where are you going? Okay, so Peter, do you remember Peter? In chapter 13, verse 36. Well, let's look at it. Let's work out some of these problems because when we work it out, there's probably some good stuff right there. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Okay, so he didn't really answer what Peter said, but he answered what Peter was feeling in his heart, right? So I don't think, I'm going to suggest, I don't think Peter was really focused on the where necessarily, but the why are you leaving us, and why can I go with you? Are you following me? His whole point is him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, where, where are you going? Not, don't tell me about where. He's not really concerned about the where. He's concerned about the going. He's concerned about the fact that they're gonna be apart and Jesus immediately answers the true question and he says, and you can't go with me. Okay, we're gonna be separate. You remember uh, later on, Thomas in 14.5, do you remember what he says? Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So is he really concerned about where Jesus is going or how he's going to get there? How he's going to get there. Okay, the whole point is this. No one is considering what is about to happen to Jesus. Nobody's asking Jesus, how's this going to work out for you? Where are you going? Like, do we need, what is going to happen with you? They are totally focused on their own situation, what was happening to them, not about what Jesus was about to face or really about where he was going. Um, I wanted you to hear the difference between chapter 14, verse 28, and 16, 15. So let's look at that. 14, 28 says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. If you'd really loved me, you would be rejoicing the fact that I'm going back to the Father. And then 16.15 says this, All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said, That is not what I wanted. Hold on. Oh, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask, where are you going? So that's the same thing. He's saying to them, if you really loved me, right? If it was really about me, you would be concerned for me about where I am going. But he's saying, but you aren't. But then I love what he says because he, he gives them an out. But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He excuses their lack of interest in his fate, knowing their great sorrow. Do you understand what is happening? In their sorrow, they can't see anybody else but themselves. I can relate to that. When you are in the deepest gut-wrenching sorrow, you can't see beyond it. You can't. And I, I remember, um, well, this is this when I wanted to tell you that? I want to address the nevertheless, okay? That word nevertheless. This word means, um, it's a challenge to their sorrow, and it means despite all of that. It says, despite all of your sorrow, and then he says, truly, truly, in other words, pay attention, what I'm about to tell you is really important, this is to your advantage. Okay, so he's saying, y'all don't, you haven't asked about me, you pretty much are concerned with yourselves right now, which he just washed their feet, what, two chapters ago. You're really concerned with yourself, but I understand why, because your heart is filled with sorrow. Nevertheless, in spite of all of that, listen to me, because what I'm about to tell you is very important. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, I thought about this example with me because I thought <clears throat> when I lost Zachary, And even now, it is a sorrow that cannot be described. You can't see beyond it. It's like an out-of-body experience. And in that time, I remember people coming up and saying things to me, right? Like, Zach's in a better place. Shut up. Do you think I care? Now, I'm just telling you, that's how I felt. I don't care that he's in a better place. I want him in my place. That's where I want, because my heart was so sorrowful, I could not see beyond my own pain and separation and sorrow. And even if, even once I got out, started to move where I could see anything, right? And now I can understand that, It probably, no, it's not probably. It was for his advantage. He ain't missing me. He's happy. He's fulfilled. He's truly known and truly loved. He's experienced all we were created to experience. He doesn't have not one ounce of brain damage, CTE, anxiety, depression, he has none of that. He is fully who Zachary was meant to be and he is loved and it is awesome for his advantage. And I can even go as far as saying that in some ways, I believe God showed mercy on Zachary. We think we knew sorrow through that. We may not know all that we would have experienced if his CTE, not if, as it progressed, And he deteriorated what that would have been like. I can say that I mourn, uh, you know, I wish he had a wife and children. But then I think, oh, do I? Because as he deteriorated, what would that have been? And how would I have loved on them? And what would they have felt? And I would have felt their pain. And you can go on for days about all of that. He got to go out as Zachary and he was loved and he didn't hurt anybody and he did it, all of that. But that says that that was for his advantage. He's not saying I'm leaving and it's to my advantage. He's saying it's to your advantage. Whoa. So that's a whole nother ball of wax that he is saying, no, this is for your advantage. So he is saying that when I get arrested, it's to your advantage that the fact that my ministry has come to an end, my miracles and teaching, it's to your advantage. That I'll be beaten and mocked and executed, nailed to a cross, and I'm gonna die in the company of criminals, and my lifeless body is gonna be laid in a cold tomb. He's saying all of that, that you haven't even, you don't understand, nor have you asked me about, or any, all of this is to your advantage, because unless I do all of this, unless I fulfill what I came to do, and I go back to my father, until then, you will not receive the helper. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. He couldn't, they couldn't understand that. With 2,000 years of hindsight, we see that when Jesus went away, he then sent the Spirit of God, which had and has a broader and more effective ministry in the entire world. Do you understand? It doesn't mean, remember, it says when the Holy Spirit, the Helper, comes, there will be greater works. It doesn't mean greater in sensation, it means greater in what? Magnitude, multiplication. And he says, this is for your, and you can really ponder that in a lot of ways. Dodd says this, the withdrawal of the bodily presence of Christ was the essential condition of his universal spiritual presence. He is saying, my physical presence is great, but my spiritual presence will be better. I want you to see something in your Bible. There have so far... There have been three promises of the Holy Spirit, and there's gonna be a total of five in here, all right? The first one, you might wanna mark it in your Bibles, is 14, 12 through 15. That's the first time we are promised. And basically, in summary, he is saying, you will do greater works than me. We just talked about that. And he says, how? Because another helper, and we talked about this, another means what? Of the same kind. Of the same kind. That's really important. Another helper will be with who? You. Individually. Personal. He will be personal. He will be the spirit of truth. Right? He is of the same kind. I am the way. I am the truth revealer. I light up the place, all right? I make it known. I shine the light. And that life was the light of men, okay? And I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the spirit of truth. He is of the same kind. And he is coming to you personally, and he is with you, and he is in you individually. Okay, that's magnificent. That was the first promise. The second one was in 14, 25 through 31. And in that, I love how John does. John gives you a bit of information and he leaves it. He like talks about a subject and then he kind of moves on. And then you know what he does? Then he goes back to that subject and he gives you a little bit more. That's good. I need to teach like that. And he kind of moves on. And then he circles back around and he gives you a little bit deeper. Isn't that how we teach our children? We give them a little what they can bear. They absorb it in. And then do we just leave the subject? No, we move on. And then we circle back to that subject. And we we explain it a little bit deeper. And then we move on. And guess what? We circle back to that subject. And we give it a little bit deeper. And this is what he's doing. He's telling us about this helper. And so this second time he is saying this to them, he's like, listen, listen. I know you're freaking out, this half-hour version. I know you're freaking out. I've told you a lot of things. But don't worry. Part of the job of this helper will be to continue to teach you, and he will help you remember everything I have taught you. Because they're freaking out. He's leaving. And the idea of remembering also brings with it the context of understanding. Okay, not just, remember all the times I told you John turns around and said, well, back then we really didn't understand that, but after he rose from the, uh, the grave, we had the Holy Spirit, we understood what he meant in the fact that he was going to rebuild the temple in three, you know, raise it up in three days. We get it now, but just so you know, we didn't get it back then. It's that, okay? And so he is saying he's going to continue to teach because he's the same kind, He's of the same kind. He's going to continue to teach, and he's also going to remind you of all the stuff I've already told you, but he's also going to make you understand. And then we saw the third one today in 1526 through 164, right? And it says, he'll bear witness about me, and so will you. He is going to continue to testify, While Jesus was on the earth, he testified about himself. He said, okay, you don't believe my words? And then the works testified. He's saying this is gonna continue because the Holy Spirit will continue to testify, right? Through who? And with participation with us. And now he is saying, In John 16, 8 through 11, which is the fourth time, he is going to say this. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged." First thing I want you to see is do you see it says and when he comes the holy spirit is not the force he is a person now can I fully understand the trinity not particularly it's mystery i have taught you that our god operates in the triune it's always the will of the father he accomplishes it through the son everything through the son how by the engine, the power of the Holy Spirit. But they are three persons, all right? So he's he's not a force, he is a person. And it says, and this is a hard section right here. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, okay? Now listen to this, sin is the truth about man, righteousness is the truth about God, And judgment is the inevitable combination of these two truths. Okay, sin is the truth about man. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Righteousness is the truth about God. And judgment is the combination of these two truths. So his job is to convict Does that sound legal to you? Does that sound like a legal term to you, convict? It sounds like trial language to me. So when you recognize that, have we heard other trial language in John? Yeah, he uses this language, right? In John 19 through 29, he talks about the fact that he is witnessing for himself. And the Jewish leadership is saying, oh, tough, too bad. In our courts, you can't witness for yourself. You have to have other witnesses, right? Preferably three, definitely two, right? And so he says, well, I've witnessed about myself. And in verse 36 of chapter five, he talks about the fact that the father, is witnessing for him because of the works. Isn't, doesn't this sound like a trial? They're putting him on a trial, actually, in this moment. They're interrogating him. Then he goes on in chapter 539, and he says, as a matter of fact, the Scriptures witness of me. Bam. There are the three witnesses, right? He says in 818, John 818, I bear witness again. This is stuff for you to go back and look at later. And then in John 10, 25, do you remember? He says to them, you'll probably remember this scene, for what good work are you trying to kill me for? And they're like, we're not trying to kill you for a good work, we're trying to kill you for blasphemy. What's blasphemy? It is a man claiming to be God, Right? And he is saying, okay, well, and he goes on to say, no, you've got it wrong. I'm not a man claiming to be God. I'm God by nature who has become man, right? But he says, but, okay, then convict me. But what are you going to do about the works? How are you going to dispute the works? And they can never dispute the works. So they can never judge him for Blasphemy. Do you realize that he didn't even, what was he accused of in the end? Do you wanna know what, what the, the charges were against him? It wasn't blasphemy, I mean, in their mind, but what, they accused him of terrorism, basically threatening to destroy their temple. And they accused him of insurrection, that he was causing insurrection against Rome, none of which was true. All right? And so in the, in the context of John, you have this language of trial. And so, but he is saying that he came to convict, okay? Part of convict means to declare a verdict, but there's another sense of convict that means convince. Does anybody have that in their scripture? Convince. In, or, in other words, to bring someone to a point of recognition. I think he does both. I think it's both. The Holy Spirit, right, will convict in regards to sin, which the sin, he says, is about belief, okay? You wanna know the only unforgivable sin? Because people get confused. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and basically what it is is disbelief. Rejection of the gospel seeing the truth and rejecting it. And so part of the job of the Holy Spirit in conviction is for us to understand who we are as men, our sinfulness, and to believe. But if that convincing does not happen, he will convict based on what? Belief. That is it. What did you do? I have written these things, John said, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in that, you would have life. the, The branch is either abiding and alive, or it is dead. That is the analogy. And then he says, I'm also gonna convict on the subject of righteousness, right? The fact that he is righteous and we are not. We're gonna get to his trial, which by, by the way was a sham, right? It was a sham of a trial and he is accused. Matter of fact, Pilate even says, I cannot find any fault in him, but he is still lifted up in what they think is humiliation. But we know is what? It is his glorification because he finished the job He obeyed the Father all the way to the cross and he fulfilled all of his own teachings about laying down his life, being willing to lay down his life. He followed through and because of that, it says that he has gone to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. He is the righteous one and we are not. What they meant for humiliation, God used for glorification. Now, the Holy Spirit will convince will convict us to see that and turn, or at the end of the day, right, our righteousness, if we show up without that, is like filthy rags before the Lord. What does that mean? It's menstrual rags. When a woman menstruated, she did not produce life, and so it represented death. To touch a dead body was to be unclean. So basically, he's saying, Our good works, the best we got, leads to death. He will convict in areas of sin and righteousness and at the end of all day, a combination of those, which is final judgment because the enemy is already judged. So if you hang on to that, you're going down with the ship. John 16, 12 through 15. Oh, I'm not going to get through it. Well, I'll work it out next time. So what I'll do is I'll give you some big points and I might give you some homework in 17, but I am not going to not get to the tri- get to Gethsemane and the trial and, and all that. And have y'all realized the perfect timing that is happening here with John, with us in Easter? Yeah? So listen, don't forget it. But what I don't want you to forget as we spread this out, these are my final thoughts. Don't forget all of this is one discourse, all right? They started in the upper room, and he's telling them, listen, I know you're freaking out, and I know your heart is troubled. But just know, at the end of the day, there's a room with your name on it. We will be together together. It was about relationship, not rewards, not about a mansion and square footage and quartz t- countertops. It's about the fact they're freaked out that Jesus, their love is leaving, and they're freaked out about it. And he said, at the end of the day, we will be together. That is hope. That is my hope, and that is your hope. And he's saying, listen, that is alive and well. At the end of the day, there's a room with your name on it. And don't worry about knowing the directions, because I myself have prepared the way, and I myself will come back and get you, and I will bring you to myself. And, and not only that, he goes on, on to tell them, I, listen, and I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm not abandoning you. Matter of fact, I am sending a helper just like me, and you ain't seen nothing yet. There are going to be greater works. There's going to be a multiplication like you cannot even imagine. And this helper, he's like me, and he's going to be not only with you, but he's going to be in you, and he's going to teach you more. I know I'm trying to get it all in in the last minute, and you just can't take it. But he's going to teach you more, more, more. And not only that, he's going to make you remember what I've already taught you, and he's going to help you to understand it. And I know you feel pressure, but don't, because he's going to testify. Along with you. That is what he's going to do. And he, he is encouraging them and encouraging them along the way. And they're not getting it. And they're getting a little. And he's just taking them through. But remember, the whole point is this. Believe in me. If you believe in me, it produces life. And life will produce fruit. I'll make sure of it. And it will be evidenced. By enduring, how are you going to experience the greatest of this relationship? How will you experience that? Through obedience. Because obedience means that you're abiding in the Trinity, in in who we are, in our purpose. And that is going to be absolute joy for you. Abide in my love. And just know you're my friend. I laid down my life for you. But if you're my friend, you're going to be laying down yours too. And the world is not my friend. They're not going to be your friend either. But don't worry. Don't worry. I am with you. And and he's walking them through all of this. What would be your last words to your people? I mean, this is good stuff. It's intense. Sit with it. Walk through it. Don't break it up. Go back and remember all that he is saying. Make a list for yourself. Outline it to see all of the points because he's writing it not just to them but to us. These are his last words to his men and they are important and we're gonna, we're gonna continue to walk through it. We'll finish it next week. I don't know what I'm gonna do with the priestly prayer and then we will go in to the passion. And so be ready. All right. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you that we get to study your Bible, your word. It's amazing. It's truth. It's hope. It's application. It's real. Lord, we learn so much about not only you, but your men, which reminds us about who we are and God, I just, when I, when I feel nervous, when I feel scared like they do, when I feel anxious and my heart is troubled, I go back to these words and I just remember that my job is I believe I've experienced life. I can't explain it, but I've experienced it. And that if I just stick with you, life does produce fruit. No matter the, what the pruning entails, it produces fruit. And life endures, it will endure to the end. And that's a mystery of what my part and your part is with that. And Lord, I don't know, but my plan is to endure. And God, I pray that you would just constantly remind me that you don't love me because I'm obedient. You loved me when I wasn't. But for me to experience the full relationship of the Trinity to truly be friends that understand a purpose and a mission, that's gonna be experienced through obedience. And so, and when I experience that, when I feel you operating through me, man, that is some serious joy. So God, I pray that we would let these words sink in as if we were sitting in that room. And Lord, what amazes me the most is how much time you spent teaching them and encouraging them. At the end of this, knowing full well what was coming for you. So many times, Lord, I feel like people don't understand how much I give through my sorrow. How hard it is sometimes to teach and encourage other people when I am so broken and so sorrowful. And even then, you are an example. Knowing, your own sorrow, and what was coming, you stayed with these guys to the bitter end to teach them and encourage them all that you could so that they would not stumble, so that through them, we too would know you. Man, you're awesome. We sure love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.